I used to have this vision in my head of Girl Scouts, and I even was a Girl Scout when I was a kid, but it's just like, oh, they sew and do this, and the Boy Scouts go camping and blah, blah, blah. And then I became a Girl Scout leader, and my kids became Girl Scouts, and it was just like I have a totally different understanding. And, guys, Girl Scouts can't do cookie booth sales this year. Not a lot of them. They're very limited. So these troops rely on this money to educate and work with these girls. Like, Find your local troop online and buy their damn cookies. I don't care where you are. Please do. If oh. you're overseas, you, there's online ordering systems. Try, try a Girl Scout cookie if you've never had one. I love a Girl Scout cookie. Um, and they're only coming out with better ones. They have the s'mores one now, yeah. which is fantastic. And I don't even, like, I do like a s'more, but, like, I'm not that into s'mores. And what was the other one that came out recently? The lemonades. Uh, yeah. The lemonades are the Hot. best thing to happen to the Girl Scout cookies in a long time. Yeah, they're great. Because it is a nice, simple lemon cookie, but with like, what do you even call it? It's like a paste underneath. Yeah, but um, yeah it's like ganache almost. Yeah. And it, so you get like this creamy layer on the outside and the crunchy on top. It's kind of like an inside out tag along. No, no, no. It's like. Yeah, I think you're right. The yeah. shortbread, shortbread inside yeah. out tagline. You're right. Yeah. And it's just the most perfect cookie, and I can't wait. And I also was really excited because I was under the assumption last year, do you remember this, that they were $15 oh, a box? Oh, yeah, no, they're $5 They're a box. only $5 a box. Well, it's because the Boy Scouts sell their popcorn for $15 because uh, they have bad money management skills. <laughs> Who even buy? Like, I don't, I've never seen a Boy Scout in my life sell po- selling popcorn uh they do sell it but uh it's not it's not the way the girls gotta i feel like it's not a um like a time-honored tradition the way it is with the girl scouts right and with girl scouts it used to be like a bake sale type thing but now it's like a lesson in economics so i really want you to know that these girls are learning like entrepreneur skills when they do this they have to make charts and they have to project into the future what they think they're going to sell and what the profit is they're like doing math at girl scouts it's incredible it's amazing it's very cool ah i love it well all our new fortune 500 ceos are going to come from the girl scouts i guarantee you um but (laughs) we're not here to talk about girl scouts no we're here to talk about girls girls just girls Because this is history on the rock, the podcast where we talk about famous women in history and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. And I'm Allie. We skipped that. Step. Oh, we did. I'm Abby, and Katie. I'm Katie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot my own name. I'm too into this beer because <laughs> we're drinking. Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest. Sam Adams Oktoberfest. A delightful little fall beer uh, because... If you're not, if you're new to this podcast, be ready because we're drinking the entire time <laughs> and we're not historians and it's Ooh, October no. 1st, the day we're recording and yes. Katie and I are fall birds. We are. Uh, I feel like a Phoenix is rising inside of me, ready to just spread fall cheer. I just could not this morning. I was like, <laughs> it's October. It's October. Everyone is October. <laughs> uh, and let me tell you, I've been having a medium bad week. So mm. October really lifted my spirits today. Medium bad is hard. Medium bad is hard. <laughs> because there's nothing really to officially complain about when you're right. having a medium bad week. And nobody wants to hear it. No one wants to hear mm-hmm. it. It's like when you have that mild headache, but you're not mm. sure if you have a headache. Yeah. I hate those. A medium bad week is like a mild headache instead of like a full blown migraine. Yeah. We're like, again, like people are like, everybody gets migraines. Everybody has medium bad weeks. And you're like, yeah, but I'm doing it now. (laughs) My turn. (laughs) Uh, So this fall, you 
might not be able to stop what you're doing because it's going to be a busy fall. Oh my gosh. People are coming out of the cupboards. You're Keep raking your, masks your on leaves. Or arranging some gourds. Yes, yeah, some <laughs> nice gourds. So please don't stop what you're doing. Don't. Not on our account. No, you don't have to Google. This is the point. This is audio. Yeah. We're going to we're going to tell you what the women that were we researched this week look like. We're going to get a little <laughs> physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing the icon, Rosie the Riveter. I cannot wait for this story. This is really fun. So while Rosie has taken on many appearances throughout the years, her most famous look includes a navy blue collared factory jumpsuit with the sleeves rolled up, a red bandana with white polka dots. Rosie is a white woman with brown hair and a dimpled chin and a thin nose with a thick bicep. (laughs) But there are other images of Rosie, like Norman Rockwell's portrait that shows a woman with auburn red hair, goggles, and a more pinched face. But the end game here is it doesn't matter because she's supposed to represent all types of women. Mm -hmm. So that's what Rosie looks like. She looks like you. (laughs) She looks like me. Um... Tonight, I am doing Agent 355. And the thing about Agent 355 is that her identity has never been revealed. So we don't know what she looked like. But she was most likely a white British colonial woman between the ages of 20 and 40. Um, I don't really know what to tell you. Picture a reenactor at Colonial Williamsburg. And that's what th- Agent 355 looked like. Because she had to look like an everyday colonial woman. I mean, that's that's a really good spy. Yeah, a really good spy. I mean, <laughs> it's been 200 years. Technically, she's one of the most success- successful spies in history then. Right. Nobody but, knows. Yeah. So that's <laughs> what I guess she probably looked like. <laughs> Great. So don't Google this anyway, because so there's no answers there's here. We have nothing. Um, neither of us. The most common kind of picture of her is like a line drawing of like a woman like riding horseback and looking absolutely bananas. I feel like it's it looks like the pictures of like um who's it? Sybil Luddington, who was the woman Paul Revere who like rode oh. twice the distance. Like Paul Revere started in the city, but then he went to a whole bunch of touch points and Sybil Luddington was one of them. And she took off on her horse and went like twice the distance oh my God. and told like double the people. Wow. But nobody gives a shit wow. about Sybil. <laughs> Never Sybil been heard of her. Never <laughs> been heard of her. Uh, we'll do it one day. Um, um, so tell me what I'm okay. drinking because okay. I see an orange peel. Okay. So this is called Codename Lady. Mm. So it is rye whiskey, apple brandy, orange thyme simple syrup, but you do a rinse with coconut rum. So I've always wanted to try this. So I saw her do it and I was like... <laughs> We go it, like, what the fuck for? are you doing? Like, I kind of understood it. Yeah. But I was like, wow. Yeah. I'm trying something new. <laughs> so a rinse is basically when you put like a little bit of like a liqueur or like a spirit or whatever in the glass and you kind of twirl it around. You want to coat the inside of the glass and then you discard it. And then, you know, you pour the cocktail in. But it doesn't change the flavor of the cocktail. It gives it like an aromatic boost. So, and then you garnish it with an orange peel and thyme. I'm so excited. Cheers. Cheers. It is delicious. Mm. I saw you pouring a lot of dark liquors in and I got really concerned. <laughs> um, but it tastes great. It tastes really good. I, I'm i a big fan. I don't drink rye whiskey very often. I'm much more of a bourbon person. Mm-hmm. Um, rye whiskey just reminds me of a bad St. Patrick's Day. Um, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> but I really like this. I really do too. I'm it's, enjoying um, it. You can taste the whiskey, mm-hmm. um, but the orange comes through so strong that mm-hmm. it like if you're not a whiskey drinker, um, you can just make it a little lighter and you yeah. won't taste it at all. No, absolutely. Yeah, you can just limit the alcohol if you're not that person. Mm. And I do think like the 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 rinse again, it's very very subtle. Mm-hmm. But sorry, did you get a time? <laughs> Got some time. Give <laughs> it a little, little more time. Um, yeah. So, what do you know about Agent Three Fifty Five? Um. So obviously, I you know I've taught eighth grade history before. So which in um a lot of U.S. states is early American government. So mm-hmm. Agent Three Fifty Five was a spy. Mm-hmm. Um. I know about the call for ring, but we never call per ring, mm-hmm. but we never talk about agent 355 in the curriculum because yeah. it's not like a certainty uh but i know she was a spy i know that they have some guesses at who she is but we we don't know for sure yeah. and i know that there's probably a callback to benedict arnold mm-hmm. but that's i mean i don't know anything about the women who they think it might be i don't you know what i mean like yeah. i don't know specifics i just know that it's like when the british had new york they really need to like n- nail down on the spying yep exactly so all that is true. Um, I want to thank listener Emily, who requested her. Um, she also requested Peggy Shippen. So these stories are going to dovetail nicely. Emily Hill loves her uh, World War II and her revolution. Yeah, she just loves a war. She's so good at it. I know. <laughs> the good requests just keep pouring Very in Very good her. requests. Um, so thank you, Emily, for this recommendation. I had a lot of fun researching this. Um, I got a lot of this from the podcast History Nerds. Um, she's basically just like a history teacher who just like really gave like a nice succinct like here's the people that they think were it because whenever anyone else tells the story they talk too much about the culprit ring which is really interesting but it's like I want to hear the theories more than like you know about this whaleboat captain right Um. I want to know what (laughs) women it could have been yes exactly because that's so important to the story yes So um, I I got a lot from that, Um, some short YouTube videos, Wikipedia, lots of short articles. But again, there's not much on her because we don't know who she was. So in that vein, uh, we can't really start with a birthday. So (laughs) (laughs) So our story starts in 1776 with the Revolutionary War. So it's the beginning of the war. the colonists have officially declared their independence from Great Britain, but unfortunately they lose a really big battle in Long Island at the, like, the get-go. And this is a huge stronghold in the Revolutionary War, and now it's fucking gone. And it's like the capital. New York is yeah. like where the capital was. It's a yeah. big mess. This is the center of everything, and now New York is is gone, which is like a huge blow. Um, So George Washington is like, shit, that was a really important area. And I can't just let it go without a fight, but I don't have the manpower to like take it back right now. I need some spies. Mm. It's the only way I am going to like have any upper hand in this war. So double O Washington. Am mm-hmm. I right? So he asks his friends, William Heath and George Clinton to set up some sort of information channel between folks inside New York and outside. So they go to this guy, Benjamin Talmadge, a.k.a. John Bolton. That was his spy name, which I think is really funny. I think John Bolton is a great name. It's a fantastic for a spy. <laughs> um, and so they're like, OK, we want you to be the leader of the ring. So give us some marching orders. Like, who do we get? How do we form this? What do we do? So Benjamin Talmadge is like, OK, 
well, we can't just have military people running around. It's too suspicious. We can't just ask strangers on the street. They might turn on us and become double agents. So it's a very tricky maneuver to find people to trust. So they set about finding some everyday people who could help them transport messages across the state. And Talmadge is like, I know just the place and just the people. Settlekit, Long Island. There you go. And my fucking childhood homies. Settlekit was the perfect place because it was on the coast of occupied Long Island, New York, but the Long Island Sound connected them to Connecticut. So it's like this little body of water and you can basically, like, I think you can like kind of see across it, like you can see Connecticut, but it's so weird because driving to Connecticut from mm-hmm. New York is a hassle and a half. Yeah. But if you get to the end of Long Island, boating oh, yeah. is it's totally right different. There. Yeah, it's right it's there. right there. So... Um, and Connecticut was still available. So that's still like not occupied right now, as far as I could tell. <laughs> I could also be wrong because I'm not a history teacher. Who knows we, if we even had those states I back don't then. even know. They weren't even states. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the first people Talmadge recruited was a farmer, trader, native Long Islander, and one of his best childhood friends, um, Abraham Woodhall. So he's like, okay, Abraham, come on. I need your help. Abraham's like, I'm in jail in Connecticut right now um, for (laughs) illegal trading, which he was definitely guilty of. Okay. Um, But he was like, no, you know the island best. You know everyone. I need your help. I love all of these men that are just – do you ever think about that? Like how much they were risking – and women. I know Mm -hmm. I just said men, but like because we're talking about the culpa ring. I just like – Yeah. I sometimes stop and I'm like, shit what if i just right now tried to overthrow the most powerful government in the world as just a normal fucking person it'd be insane it's crazy it's what these people did crazy. is nuts <laughs> so <laughs> so talmud is like it's fine i'm gonna get you out of jail so <laughs> he goes to like the governor of connecticut kind of guy and he's like hey i really need this guy so they let him out um <laughs> <laughs> So he's released and he is given the spy name Samuel Culper for the Culper ring. Then Talmadge hits up another childhood friend, Caleb Brewster, a.k.a. Agent 725, who was a whaleboat captain. And he was really crucial because he could sail across the Long Island Sound undetected because he's like, this is my fucking job. Like, I'm a captain of a ship. I have to be sailing the sound. I'm already out here anyway. I'm not going to look suspicious. Yeah, exactly. Don't be suspicious. So they get Brewster on the, on the team. Then there's Austin Rowe who owns a tavern and he's crucial because not only can like people kind of stay there and like kind of have a little more intimate time with him and like get the messages out, but he has to get supplies to fund his, tavern and inn so he can kind of go all over the state of new york getting supplies and up to connecticut and like it's not suspicious or weird Mm. so i'm just imagining this is like the ocean's 11 crew coming together (laughs) um (laughs) and matt damon's outside (laughs) and then what's his face what george clooney no gould oh Um, elliot gould elliot gould's like get the fuck inside (laughs) he doesn't cuss in the line i always thought he cussed but he doesn't (laughs) i watched it back on the way to vegas last year he doesn't cuss Class act, who apparently, according to my Aunt Linda, who went to his house one time, has bowls of cocaine. Uh, and that's like a joke in my family. <laughs> but also has was the father of Monica and Ross Keller. So, mm-hmm. you know, the important things in life. <laughs> um, and then there's Robert Townsend, a.k.a. Samuel Culpepper Jr. <laughs> hey, listen, <laughs> if you're going to have a good code name, 
Gotta double it up. Um, who was a merchant in New York City who was in a perfect position to gather the intelligence Washington needed and then send it along the line. So here's how the line would go. Townsend, who was kind of like in Manhattan, would give the letter with the information to Austin Rowe. Rowe would carry the letter to Woodhull, and then he would get the letter to Brewster, who would sail it across the water to Connecticut, where some fellas would be waiting to take the letter wherever George Washington was. Now, you might think, that's a lot of hands to pass through. What happens if they get caught? Well, they had many methods for hiding their messages. The first was... Put it up their butt. Put it up their butt. Number two. Okay. Put it on a walnut. Put it up your butt. Um... (laughs) Number three. (laughs) Number two. Uh, Invisible ink. Now, the British had been using lemon juice as invisible ink for some time. This is like a very common like home experiment a lot of people do with kids. Nicolas Cage found it on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Right. Um, And basically, you know, you write it with lemon juice and then when you activate it with like heat or something then the message appears mm-hmm. so they had been using this for some time so washington was like well i want to make sure it's extra secure so we have to find some other type of invisible ink so he had a doctor friend of his develop an ink made of something called gallic acid which comes from the gall nut which i've never even heard of He's probably growing um, in your yard so probably <laughs> that and the pawpaws they're <laughs> outrageous the paw paws um <laughs> so google paw paws everyone yeah, please do they're horribly horribly invading my yard um so when the ga- gallic acid is used on paper you can't see it but then if you give the recipient of the letter something called ferrous sulfite they can rub it on the paper and that exposes the writing Okay, so it's not heat activated anymore. It's not heat activated, which makes it safe because the British know to look for coded messages. Well, George Washington was a general under the British Army. Oh, that's right. In the French and Indian War, so he knows all their tactics. He knows all their secrets. Yeah. So he's like, we can't do that. Let's do this. I know, which is so funny that, like, no one else was like, maybe we should find it a different method. He's like... Okay, we need to figure this out. I mean, it's why he became the president. Probably, He's yeah. He's like a fucking boss. That and his wooden teeth. Just yeah. soaring him to victory. Yeah. I mean, um, God, just if he had just gotten rid of his slaves, he would have been perfect. I know. Mwah. Just that I just, one thing. I just want to kick him in the balls. I want to kick him in the wooden teeth for that. <laughs> terrible, terrible, for terrible. That slavery. Um, dick. Horrible. So... <laughs> So they find out this other method, which doesn't use heat. So it's super, super secretive. The British have no idea what they're doing. And this is some tight ass shit back in the day (laughs) because like it's really secure and people think it's like magic. It's like a retina scan today. Yeah, it's (laughs) unbelievable. It really is. So they had this. The second thing they used was something called the Culper Code. So Talmadge created this code, which was a secret code (laughs) that they would use in their letters so if you did get a letter, you couldn't translate what it was because they'd be like, I'm going with blah, blah, blah to blah, blah, blah. And we're going to blah, blah, blah. It's and like it's when you like, gossip about your friends in front of them. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So this was a complicated list of 763 letters um, that represent, wait, 763 numbers. Yeah. That represented words, names, and places. 
Okay, so it is a cipher. Yes. So, for example, George Washington's code. So, if you were going to say, I was with George Washington, you would say, I was with 7-Eleven today, which puts a whole new spin on the uh, the gas station chain. It really does. <laughs> but they only named themselves that because they were open seven days a week, 11 hours a day. Wait, what? Yeah, 7-Eleven, it was because they were like the first people that were like, we're going to open every day, seven days a week for 11 hours. Wow. I was really convinced after I did this research that it was because of George Washington. Now well, they're open 24-7. I know. They should just change their name to 724, but... You know, I understand. I appreciate the we're open on Sundays gig, 7-Eleven. Yeah, true. Because if um, Chick-fil-A can call themselves 6-8. 6-8? Curse you, Chick-fil-A. Start liking gay people or you're done. You're done. They won't. They won't. Um, Okay. They got some good sauce. Where am I going? (laughs) Okay, Um, 7-Eleven. George Washington, 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven. Then uh, New York was 727. And then we have 355. So when historians first came across this code, it was used in a letter written by Abraham Woodhull in 1779 when he mentions that 355 has been, quote, one who hath been serviceable to this correspondence. And then there's another letter where he says, I intend to visit 727 New York before long. And I think by the assistance of 355, of my acquaintance, <laughs> you're doing great. By the insi- by the assistance of a three fifty five of my acquaintance of a three fifty five by my acquaintance, shall be able to out- outwit them all. Ooh. So what you need to know is, she's been really really helpful, and he believes that she's going to outwit everybody. And that's the literal only real that's life. Like the only documentation we have. Of okay, her. but also that's true of a lot of. Sp- lot of people yes yes yeah, absolutely okay. it's just very cool also, also did you print your paper front and back i did by accident i didn't know my printer was capable of this and then my printer was printing my paper and the the fucking paper just shot back inside <laughs> and i almost ripped open my printer because i was like what are you doing and it, it started turns coming out, back out? I, I, I don't know how my computer knew how to do this. There's an FB I, click on the printer, but so, I was just going to say you're an environmentalist. I was like, really I mean, I try you. to be, and right. now I'm especially one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I want to take credit for this, but I can't. I was terrified when it was happening. <laughs> I didn't know my printer could do that. Wow. And wow. The thing is, I think the only way it came about was because my computer finally got fixed from Apple. So mm. I went and picked it up this week, got my computer back. Da 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 da. Now my printer prints both ways. That's great. It's fantastic. You know, I'm not complaining. I'm just surprised. Um, so. <laughs> okay, so 355. This is her only ever documentation in real yep. life history. Okay. Yep. Um, so what she is kind of credited for is helping expose the Benedict Arnold threat and arresting John Andre. I don't know how historians deducted that honestly um but the things we can kind of deduct about her is that she was probably a woman from a very prominent loyalist family because they think that that's how she got kind of connected with john andre because he Um, was like a playboy right from your peggy shippen story exactly okay um and the other thing that people are like 99 percent sure of is that abraham woodhull recruited her personally oh so she knows john andre 
and Abraham Woodhull asked her to join the fucking crew. Well, it doesn't seem like a job that you would get by applying. Yes. It's no. something where someone has to know you and trust you. Yes. And know how you truly feel about something. Exactly. Okay. And, but the thing is, so 727 means George, I mean, 711 means George Washington. 355 just means lady. Mm. So it could mean that one lady or a group of ladies all working together are spies because there's one thing that we do know, and that is that multiple women were involved in the cult or spy ring. So these could be two different women mentioned in two different letters. It could just be any of the ladies. It could be one particular one. We literally have no idea. So because we do have a few names of potential 355s. We'll go through some of the potentials, ending with who I think is the person most likely 355. So some people think that it was Peggy Shippen. <laughs> and they're like, maybe we had the whole story wrong. And she was a double agent. And she set up John Andre and her husband. Disagree. Uh, disagree. Highly disagree. She was absolutely a traitor. Hard, hard disagree um, on that one. Hard no. Hard pass on Peggy Shippen being a secret hero. Uh, I love her was, to death. She was a wild gal. Wild. But, but she was riding John Andre's dick in her imagination. Absolutely. Uh -huh. She was not helping out. No. Um, other people say that it was a woman, like a mystery unknown woman, who was having an affair with Robert Townsend, a.k.a. Samuel Culpepper Jr. Um, this, I'm sorry, Culpepper, that was from last week. I meant Culper. <laughs> My God, did you oh, listen to that episode? I didn't. It was great. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really good. Um, okay, Culper Jr. <laughs> so this particular legend says that Agent 355 and some other members of the Culper spy ring were captured shortly after the Benedict Arnold fiasco. This particular story is interesting because in this version, not only is Agent 355 captured, but she is pregnant gasp like Pocahontas like Pocahontas on a ship with Townsend's child double gasp <gasps> pretty crazy some people think that this theory Culper Jr.'s child hi, Culper <laughs> Jr.'s child um so some people think that this theory holds water because Townsend was extremely distraught when this group of spies got captured like people are like dude it happens all the time don't worry like they're not gonna kill them and he goes no i don't know and he's just like really like freaking out like everybody's like oh my gosh calm the fuck down dude it's fine you're, all is fair in love and war you're like, at you a 10 this. take it to like a two exactly and so people are like it was obviously because it was the woman who was carrying his baby <laughs> so this poor pregnant woman is taken aboard the hms jersey a british prison ship and kept there for so long that she ends up giving birth on the ship to a little boy and then dying shortly after the childbirth she died on the ship mm -hmm. oh my mm -hmm. god well i mean i'm gonna say british ships probably don't have the best sanitation for no after birth definitely not um so this is kind of the legend. And of course, some people are like, and that baby was Robert Townsend Jr. <laughs> Culpepper Jr. Culper Jr. Jr. Culper um, Jr. The, the third. Jr. <laughs> um, Townsend Culper <laughs> a Jr. A born spy. 
Um, he goes to school and he's like Culpepper or Cul- Culper <laughs> hyphen thousand comma the third. And his teachers junior. are like, God damn, do I have to write this whole fucking last name? Culper Junior Townsend the third. <laughs> um, so <laughs> wait, what's his name? Abraham. Is it Abraham? No, Robert. Oh, Abraham was Woodhall. Abraham okay. was Woodhall. <laughs> Robert. Culper. Robert. <laughs> no, it would be Samuel Culper Jr. Robert Townsend the <laughs> third. Oh no. The third. Never mind. I'm losing it. <laughs> Culper third... would be the third. Samuel Culper the third, Robert Townsend Jr. Right, right, right. The third the counsels person. out the junior. Yes. Got it. Okay. So <laughs> but some people say that this couldn't have happened because they were like, well, they didn't put women on the prison ships, let alone pregnant women. But then some historian was like, OK, I'm going to figure this out. So he painstakingly went through all 14,000 or so like names of the prisoners on these ships. And he found that they did have a few ladies on here. Not a lot, but there were a few. Um, but people are like, I still don't think so. But then there's this other little tidbit that comes from this kind of side of the story. So Townsend apparently did have a child out of wedlock named Robert Townsend Jr. And so he Cul- has this child. Culper the third. Culper the third. <laughs> he has this child out of wedlock, names it after himself, but then gives it to his brother to raise. And it's like, you don't think he's going to realize that like, I mean, he's a junior. The, and the brother you gave him to is not your name. Like, what the fuck are you thinking? But I don't know. This son grew up to be a very well-known lawyer and politician. And the thing that gets people is he just so happened to work on a project called the Prison Ship Martyrs Memorial. Very interesting. So that's why people are like, it's because his mom fucking died on a prison ship. But then it's like his birth doesn't really match up. Like it was kind of after the war. And then like Ancestry.com has tried to like really track it back. But it just like. It's not it's not really panning out. Either way, I'll take it. <laughs> most historians agree that he was actually the son of the housekeeper because, again, most people say he was born after the war was over and every colonial man was like being terrible to their housekeepers and slaves. Mm-hmm. So that's most likely a situation. I don't think this woman was a slave. She She's always listed as a housekeeper. Mm-hmm. So like a paid employee. Many people in the North um, paid their their employees yeah uh but then also treated them like shit yeah so they're they're like well at least i'm paying you i know and it's like that mm, okay but then they still had some slaves up there like it's mm, yeah so it depended on the it depended on the family (laughs) yeah um okay so some people say (laughs) that agent 355 is a woman named elizabeth bergen who was a widowed mother living in New York City who spent her time helping colonial prisoners of war escape. It is said that she helped up to 200 prisoners escape, but there is no record of how she accomplished such a feat. So like some historians are like, did she really fucking do it? But what we do know is that she was so important when the war was over that George Washington demanded that Elizabeth receive a stipend to help take care of her and her family for, like, the rest of her life. But George Washington fucking loved people. Oh, really? He was down I don't for... I like, anything about him. He was down for doing people... Like, doing people right that did their job. Mm. Like, he was very... 
very intense. I mean, even to the point of like burying slaves in like an actual graveyard with like stones that said things. Oh my god. Which I know. I mean, that sounds shitty, but like he really, <laughs> he really. But that's did, like, if somebody did him right, he was like, okay, I'm on your team. Yeah. Which is also why he was very willing to like execute people who betrayed him. Oh. He was like a all or nothing kind of person. I see. That makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so George Washington is like, she's going to get a stipend for the rest of her life. And Congress was like, okay. And they're like, we're going to give you a place to stay. We're going to give you food rations. But she wrote to them saying like, I am so grateful for that. But like, I really don't want to be a burden on the United States. She was like, I will accept something, but like, can I at least work for it? And so she's like, I can strip T-shirts. I can, you know, do this. I can do that. I can sew uniforms for the army. But then they're kind of like, well, yeah, but we're not in a war anymore. So there really like wasn't a job for her. So he was like, okay, what if we just act like it's a military pension? And she was like, okay, I can deal with that. I can run with that. Because she just, this woman did all this amazing stuff, apparently. And she was still like, I don't want some, I don't want like to be a burden. I don't want the American people to think that like their taxes are going towards like paying my rent on this house and paying for my children to eat. Like, well, I ultimately mean, taxes it is. were super contentious. Yeah. Back that, that was the whole reason for the Revolutionary right. War. So... It was kind of one of those things like she was like, I don't want it to be like you literally giving me like bread and apples. I just like a pension is fine. I can I can live with that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And I've never heard of her either. So she seemed cool. Um, <laughs> Betty Floyd is another potential 355. She was Robert Townsend's cousin. But really, the only people think that it was her is because, again, he got like really upset when they got captured um that and the fact that she did die on a prison ship so those two things those things kind of all match up yeah um i also just kind of want like thousand was it thousand townsend townsend i also just want to like maybe he was just like a person who liked his coworkers. i know maybe he was just an empathetic human being <laughs> he was like guys we like i was really down even if like just the fact that they were female at that point in history may have made him feel really like I, I feel responsible for these women and now they are captured. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there could have been this whole different side of it. It's He didn't have to be in love with someone. No. So uh, leading us to the other person they think it is, which is Sally Townsend, uh, his sister. Of course. <laughs> Now, this one is actually more interesting than I thought it was going to be at first. So some people think it was Sally Townsend because British soldiers were stationed in her home. They had taken over her fucking house in Oyster Bay. And one of those soldiers falls head over heels in love Mm. with Sally while basically keeping her under house arrest. Fucked up power structures. Am I right? Every so time. he writes this epic love letter, which for some reason became known as the first American Valentine. Um, I Shut wrote, up. <laughs> I wrote, ha ha, after that in my notes. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I guess I wanted to remind myself to laugh about that. Um, uh, because the captain. So- I, come on. Come on. <laughs> really? Now, I also do believe that some soldiers do biddings that they don't agree with. Yes. Underneath yeah. of their generals. Yes. 
But I also think that women are vulnerable when their houses are taken over. So this is a big old story. And like Sally admits, she's like, we did have a brief flirtation, but I was also, again, under house arrest. Um, But she said it always stopped there. And she always like denied any proposals he made to her. But what really makes her a contender is that she was in the room where it happened. She was there when John Andre stopped through and discussed his plans to capture West Point with Benedict Arnold. Oh, well then, damn. I mean, come on. She might really... She's a really high contender, I think. Put a fork in her. She's Uh, done. She's fucking done. (laughs) And Uh, I mean, because, I mean, Andre, you had to be high enough socially that he would speak in front of you, but then you also had to be in, in a loyalist camp. Yeah. Exactly. And the thing again is like at this point, no one knows that Robert Townsend is a spy because he's a fucking spy. Okay. Damn. I know. So. All right, girl. All uh, right, Sally. Um, so some people think that like she was like, oh, look, my brother's visiting. Oh, my gosh. They're going to take West Point. Benedict Arnold. John Andre. Right. And he was like, "Okay, thank you for the muffins. I will see you next week, honey. Um, And then fucking leaves. And basically people think that she set the plan in motion to capture John Andre, which is really fucking cool. Um, But the final and what most people consider. okay, do you think it's Anna? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I just wanted to see. So this is like the like whenever I'm in the Sally camp. Now I am too, honestly. After I did this, like when I first started the research, I was like, it's like 100% Anna. Now I'm 100% like, it's Sally. I, I've, it's Sally. I've <laughs> always been pretty sure it was Sally, but I'm, I understand the Anna argument. So yes. why don't you tell our listeners the Anna um, argument? <laughs> also, Allie and I have this thing where, <laughs> you know, the scene in um, Nightmare Before Christmas when he's saying Sally. Sally! I did a really good one in the car because Allie and Jake sent me like clips of them saying it. Um, I have a really good one. Sally. Oh, that's very good. That's, I did it a lot a little, better the other day. It's a little goatee. Yeah. Uh, um, Sally. <laughs> okay. So for the listeners, let's back up. Let's okay. Back, back, up. Back, okay. back up. So producer and I compete constantly. It's our whole relationship is competing against each other to be better at things. And we were fighting over who said Sally in the nightmare before Christmas. Weird mummy. Doctor guy. Doctor even have wheelchair a guy. I don't know <laughs> who said it better. And so we recorded it and sent it out to people. And I got some votes. I got some votes on my Sally. I, I think I won. I think you did too. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, uh, and sh- that's an amazing name. Yes. It rhymes with Allie. Yeah. Okay. So um, tell me about Anna. Anna Smith Strong was born on Long- in Long Island on April 14, 1740. Anna's father was Colonel William Smith, son of Henry Smith, and grandson of Colonel William Smith, who was a justice of the Supreme Court established in New York in 1691. Mm. That's pretty cool. So she ends up marrying a man named Salah Strong. And Sela, Sela, I don't know. Um, Sela V. Mr. Strong, (laughs) um, who was a delegate to the first three provincial congresses in colonial New York. He was also a captain in the New York militia in 1776. So she was already kind of on the up and up when it comes to this kind of stuff. They seem to be just a normal colonial couple with 10 fucking children, 
Ugh. One of, I know. Vomit. One of which was named George Washington. I mean, <laughs> who does he think he is? A middle school? Um, and... <laughs> named him mlk god <laughs> come on <laughs> that was great that um, was very funny and uh but <laughs> i just love that name george washington strong like <laughs> middle school um so lance armstrong quaker <laughs> my son's name uh okay um and then actually a few of her other children married the children <laughs> of fellow Culper spiring people, which okay. I think is pretty cool. It's like a fraternity. It really is. Um, but in 1778, the same year that the Culper Ring was founded, Sela Sela Sia Chandelier was captured <laughs> by the British Army, and at first he was placed in a prison called the Sugar House. But later, according to family records, he was placed in you guessed it, the HMS Jersey. Oh man. And some records Why say... Why is everybody on a ship? I don't know. Everybody's on a damn because ship. The they British only have occupy, a great Navy. Yeah, they have the a British have a great Navy. Navy. I'm sorry. You have a great Navy, Britain. Um, so some records say that Anna would go onto the ship and she, like, not regularly, but, like, he was, like, literally on his deathbed and she brought him some food. And so maybe that's the reason. Some people are like, yeah, 355 was on the ship. Because she went there to give him food and, like, basically saved his life. Um, but for the most part, Anna Strong just appeared to be a single mother who happened to be the neighbors and friends of Abraham Woodhull, a.k.a. Culper Sr. I literally wrote Culpepper so many times in this fucking paper. Culper Sr. I mean, my story was enchanting. Uh, it really was. It was it's in my head. Um, so cl- she's just a single woman neighbor because her husband is in prison. Yes. Okay. Husband's away. She's alone. And she is operating within her neighborhood. Yes. I, I'm painting that picture for later. Just I want the everybody to see that. Paint the picture. Okay. So according to legend, Anna's main mission was to send signals to the members of the Culper Ring. The reason that she was the best woman for the job was that her house was conveniently located on what would later be known as strong neck point, which is like at the top of this, like basically like seaside cliff. So it was clearly visible to the long Island sound Mm -hmm. where the Culper line boats were sailing. And who else could see it was Abraham Woodhull. He could see it from his farm. So all these members of the Culper ring can actively see it. So, if she hung up a black petticoat, it meant that Brewster was in town and they could get a message across the sound. So that kind of rallies the troops. And then the number of handkerchiefs she hung alongside the black petticoat told Abraham Woodhull which of the six meeting locations Brewster was hiding his boat. Perfect. So it's a one by air, two by or one by boat, two no, one by land, two by sea. Pretty much. Situation. Yeah. Okay. So she's basically like black petticoat here's the message he's at cove number four right out of six so some historians claim that this never occurred like we don't have any proof but it's also like they're aspiring so i'm absolutely positive they burned like 90 percent of their correspondence you know um but i honestly don't know how the line could have operated so smoothly without anna strong doing this to be honest with you because how would they know when a message was ready to be received? You know what I'm saying? Like, it had to be something completely 
normal. Yeah. And people were watching the men. Yeah. And and we do have like letters from the British saying like, there's this woman who does a lot of laundry. Like they were like suspicious of her. Um, but after the war, her husband is released home and they quickly had another baby. Maybe this is George Washington Jr. And maybe this is why there are stories of Agent 355 being pregnant. Mm. There is also a little, another like little nugget of maybe because similar to Elizabeth, the strong family was given a stipend at the end of the war by George Washington for work with the Culper ring. And we know that Sela, whatever his name is, was in prison. So it must have been for Anna. There's no other reason. There's like, no other reason why he would give them a stipend. Any, like, it's in the notes. It was for the Culper ring. Like, there's no other reason. And so, it, that also leads credence to the fact that it may have been multiple women. Mm-hmm. It may have been like a crew of women all doing different things. Yeah. No, absolutely. Oh, my. I'm feeling very stressed out yeah. about wanting to know now. <laughs> so currently, Agent 355 lives in the DC comic universe <laughs> as a character in the series Why the Last Man. It is like this po- post-apocalyptic story where all the men in the world have been erased except for this like one guy and his pet monkey. And Agent 355 is this badass woman of color who is in the novels as part of the Culper spy ring. But in Future World, she is quite adept with firearms and her trademark weapon is a collapsible baton. Pretty badass. So if you're interested in comics, go check that out. We will never know who Agent 355 really is or if she really existed. But frankly, the point of this whole story is that all of these women are Agent 355. Even if they weren't the exact woman referred to in the letter, they all did incredible things, besides Becky Shippen, uh, <laughs> to further the revolutionary cause, help others, and fight for freedom. So I say cheers to all these women and everyone who considers themselves a 355. Perfect story. <laughs> I love it. I think it's a great story. I it, I I really loved because I felt like I got to like basically do like seven women in this thing, and like I at the end of it, I was like at the beginning because everyone talks about Anna Strong. I was like, oh, it's for sure Anna. I'm on your side. I think it was Sally. I think yeah. Sally is the 355 mentioned in the letters. I think Sally makes the most sense. Yeah, I um I haven't done like any research on Sally at all. But just from your story, like it just, you know, it, t- being connected to Townsend makes so like if somebody took my my baby sister and like she was constantly around British people like that's a it's a very interesting thing. Yes. No, absolutely. Um, so- She was in a position with Andre and. Uh, Arnold and that's which the, the thing, other women were and that's the thing that the, 355 is credited mm-hmm, with the Andre I Arnold know. find because was Anna Strong a 355 maybe absolutely but I don't think she was the 55 mentioned the 355 mentioned in the letters I think that was Sally yeah because you're right there was no other woman who really had the more direct direct connections to the Benedict Arnold plot. And also like besides Peggy, but it's it's <laughs> <laughs> and also it's really cool to think about the idea that maybe 
there were a lot of women who were working with revolutionary soldiers that weren't connected to the culpa ring. Yeah. So maybe they were like, hey, hang this, hang up this fucking laundry when this happens. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have to be employed by George Washington. Yeah. You know, to do things like that. And women do shit like that all the time. They're just like, oh, I'm here. I'm looking normal. Here's my pie. Yeah. You need a pie? (laughs) It's poison. (laughs) Poison. Um, Okay. Do you need another cocktail? We need another cocktail. So we'll be right back with another story. So long. We are back. We're back. We're here. Part two. And this could not have aligned better. I honestly, when you did your physical and you're like, she can be any woman. She's meant to be any woman. I was like, fuck. Because the thing that the listeners don't know is we fucked up this week. We fucked up big time. But how did so, I play my part? Did I play my part well? <laughs> yes, you did. So where's my EGOT? Allie and I accidentally researched the same person this week, and that was Agent 355. Now, to be fair, I did not get that far. We caught it early. Yeah, we caught it very, very early. Because we share Google Docs. Yes. So it was like, why do we both have the same Google Doc? And yeah. then I was like, oh, shit, you're supposed to do Agent 355, and I'm supposed to do... Rosie the Riveter. So yes. we figured it out so very early. we figured it out. So everything was good. Um, You know, we caught it early, whatever. But it's the first time that that's happened. And I've dr- I've dreaded that moment. I know, because this thing, it was going to happen eventually. Yeah. And I'm glad it happened this way. And I didn't, like, come to your house with everything ready. And you'd be like, and I'm going to tell the story of blah, blah, blah. And we'd be like, that's the story I'm telling. I think that would have been actually really fun. It would have been. <laughs> if we told um, the same story. Um, but okay. So this is also a little bit of an excuse party. So this, two weeks ago, we did a request from Miss Krista. But this is also a request from Miss Krista. So I, because I bumped around one that I thought would be easy because I had yes. less time to research. Yeah, because there's a lot of Because I was supposed to be doing Rosa Parks, which will be next week. And we didn't want the Rosa Parks story to be rushed. Right. So we will get, and like, this is the thing we're doing two people, like the request today come from two people who have already gotten their request mentioned. So everyone else who requested, it will be coming up. But also these two people are Patreons. So they fucking deserve it. Yes, absolutely. Get on the money train. (laughs) Uh, You get very little from us for being Patreons. Except for we talk about your name a lot. Sometimes I post episodes early and occasionally I send you things in the mail. (laughs) But that's it. It's not a very, uh, attractive club to be a part of but <laughs> it's not we just really like you for giving us some sort of money because this is not cost effective <laughs> no it is not this podcast is hemorrhaging money it is really do- we d- bourbon I mean come <laughs> on bourbon is very I, expensive it's, it's, it's so much that like I was trying to find the exact right rye whiskey to buy and then I finally picked one and then some guy behind me says you know, there's a better bourbon version of that, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I spun around and I was like, who the fuck? And then I was like, oh my gosh, that's my dad. And he was like joking with me. <laughs> and you were like in the liquor Because store? he knows I like bourbon better. <laughs> and I was like, why am I running into my dad on a regular basis <laughs> at, at the, the liquor, liquor store? store? What is wrong with us? <laughs> 
have a really serious problem. We have a problem. Um, but anyways, do you want to know what you're about to drink? <laughs> I want to know because it's sitting there just waiting for me to drink it. All right. Well, this cocktail is called the Yes We Can. I love that. Yes, we can. And <laughs> it is two ounces of bourbon. So you know, bourbon whiskey. And it is, that's what the bottle said. <laughs> and it is a half an ounce of grenadine. And then you top it with club soda and you put some straw. Oh, well, I was going to put strawberries in it, but we used them all in the smoothie this morning. <laughs> so now it's a cherry. So there's a reason for this. I wanted the bourbon because dark liquor is typically seen as a more male style drink. Yes. And then I wanted the soda and grenadine to be more like a Shirley Temple. <gasps> I love it. And then to throw the cherry in in like the this is the pie you should have been baking while you were at work. <gasps> I love that. So, mm. yes, we can. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. so simple it's tasty so right you know what it's you know what it tastes like what a strawberry slurpee from 7-eleven <gasps> it is like that <laughs> syrup it, it's the grenadine that's what's doing that's it. exactly what or cherry i guess mm-hmm. a cherry slurpee whatever the red one is the yeah. red slurpee from 7-eleven it does it taste a lot like that when it's melted in the bottom of the cup mm. and you've just got that little bit left yeah which is so funny because there's nothing in this that should point to that but no. it just does it's just very tasty i love this yeah and it's like the little tiny bit of bite that club soda yeah. that makes you think you're having a 7-eleven slurpee absolutely 7-eleven so is our first thing that we have in common yeah. with our stories. um and fun fact if you're feeling really sick and you're throwing up all the time um fiance Knowles says you should drink a slurpee so mm-hmm. that way it feels good coming back up Ooh. I do a freezy <laughs> it's pop. It's a nice, cool, like, ru- it's a cool rush coming back up, he says. Cool runnings? Uh, <laughs> just picture a Jamaican bobsled team in your throat coming back up the run. And they go quick. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? Arrest us. What is wrong with me? What do you know about Rosie the Riveter? Okay. So I know that she is like this icon of the working woman of World War II. I know that I always picture her in like I think in the Norman Rockwell painting is she eating a sandwich? Oh yes, she's okay, got okay, a okay. Sandwich. I always picture eating her her eating like a BLT or like Girl a club a sandwich. sandwich. She's got a sandwich. Um, yep. and I know that she was kind of like to like boost morale for the war. I think it, like for women to go to work. But then it was kind of like this slap in the face because then once women stopped, like once the men came back, they're like, okay, women, shoo shoo, get out of here. Papa. And then it's like they were out of jobs. And right. then I I consider Rosie the Riveter kind of like this mainstay of like women want to work. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Of like we may have lost women in factories for a little time, but Rosie the Riveter stayed as like a symbol of like, yeah, they fucking did that shit and they liked it. Yeah. So... That is my personal take on Rosie the Riveter. Uh, so this story is going to be all over the fucking place. I'm sure. I am going to give the names. I'm going to speak credence to the names of a lot of women because yeah. I, I wanted to say their names on an audio format with, for maybe the first time, maybe the last time. But there's a lot of people that I'm going to speak about. Uh, say the names, say the names. When everyone's around you, <laughs> <laughs> telling you to not work. Um, I Baby, love say it. The name. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna really, I'm gonna run through this. Okay. okay, we're in World War II. She is a propaganda campaign turned into the most famous 
female American icon in history. We're about to break into her because we don't necessarily know her story. Or should I say stories? Because Rosie the Riveter is not one woman, but millions of women. She's incredible. So on December 7th, 1941, the naval base Pearl Harbor was attacked and the United States declared war on Japan and the Axis powers. Eligible men, some of which who had just fought in World War I a few years earlier, were then drafted or volunteered for military service. This created space in jobs in the workplace for women. Now, do not get it twisted. Women worked during World War I. They worked during the Great Depression. They worked during the Revolution. This is just the first time that propaganda backs it up. Oh, shit. Okay. And it is actually... What I wrote, it's what I wrote my bachelor's thesis on. Really? Was that Rosie the Riveter was not the first time that women joined the workforce. I have, Allie, I just got chills. I got chills. I'm obsessed with it because when I was growing up, my grandmother is part of the greatest generation. She's currently in her 90s and she worked all throughout World War II. And anytime somebody brought up Rosie the Riveter, she would actually get viscerally angry and be like, I worked, my mom worked. Why did people think women didn't work? And she will still tell you that to this day. Yeah. Because I feel like it was kind of this thing of like... It was a secret that (laughs) women Oh my gosh, women going to work? (laughs) And it's like, we tell stories of women from, again, all times and places. Working. And so many of them had jobs. Like, we just talked about, what was it? Um, uh the freaking astronomer and it's like her mom was a paint mimic or whatever yeah. like an like you know what i'm saying like she had a paying job we just again like don't well and they also did have blue collar jobs yes. which i think that's the difference in this thing it is and it's a it's a very interesting story because i've all i was always shocked that my grandmother was so like anti rosie rosie the riveter but i think she just felt insulted like, yeah, I was important before that cartoon well, it's kind existed. Of like, yes, we can. Yes, I've already been doing. Like, I've been, what? Been there, done that. Yeah. So, um, because your grandmother was like a banker, a bank manager, a bank manager. She was the security manager yeah. for this region, so she took the money from bank to bank. That's so fucking cool. Yeah, she was very fucking cool. Still alive. Um, oh, we'll see how long. I also, I. And I want to say this up top, too. I frankly think that some of it also has to do with people not respecting blue collar work. I absolutely agree with that. Which we have talked about, you and I, many a times. Because, like, Fiance Knowles is a blue collar worker. Both and he of works our fathers. so fucking hard. Both of our dads, a lot of our friends, like... Your older brother. Yeah. yeah. Just, like, so many people in our lives, like, do this work and... It's just not very respected. And I think that's also plays a big part in this. But also, I should really shut up and let you tell this uh, fucking story. No, keep <laughs> keep running it. I love it. I did this. Th- I did this your whole story. So it's fine. Okay. So some three to six million new women did answer the workforce call during World War Two. So between 1940 and 1945, Women in the workforce increased from 27% to 37%, which means there were 12 million women. And by the end of the war, there were 19 million women. Wow. So it, it was a big jump. It was a, jump. Bump. It it was was a, a bump. big bump. 
So half of the jobs that were granted to women after the war started were in military defense, which were industries that were previously jobs reserved for men, except for during World War I when women also held some of those jobs. About two million in the military jobs specifically. These women came usually from lower paying industries like secretary work or homemakers or educators, and they bumped themselves into these military jobs. But the biggest part of this is how. You can't just put out a painting of a woman and say, now go work in a factory. So I'm going to tell you how, because I think Rosie the Riveter is a process and not one fucking day that a picture came out in the Sunday Post. Okay. So Women of Steel changed labor completely. This was a branch of the United States steel workers that was active during World War I and even more active during World War II. There's a beautiful bronze statue that commemorates these women. And if you want to Google it, just type in, you know, women steel workers and it will come up. They uh, pushed for a new labor force in World War II that tapped the untapped labor market of women. But there was lots of years and sweat and blood that went into these women because it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to hire whoever. It was a process. So I'm going to give you names of some women that were a part of this process. In the Department of Labor, Frances Perkins was the first female secretary of labor. She was friends and worked with Thelma McLeavy, who was part of the Women's Labor Supply Services. She tried to figure out like war production between when women worked in peacetimes versus war times. They both worked with Mary Anderson, who was the leader of the Women's Bureau. And this was part of the Department of Labor that was established back in 1920. And all of that was tied up in the War Manpower Commission that had a female agency committee that had an efficiency expert named Lillian Gilbreth, a lawyer named Margaret Hickory, and a school principal named Maudel Ballsfield. What? All of these women are out there pushing. Before the Rosie the Riveter poster ever comes out, okay. they're out there like, we need to tie this down. We need these girls. We need to draw them in. Because their job was on the perception of women in the workplace and ads and PR. But their most important job was how do we find the women who want to work and how do they find us? You can't Google a new job back then. I routinely underestimate the power of like printed word and advertisement back then because things weren't just like, I'm bored, so I'm going to look at Facebook or Instagram or whatever. It was like you had to seek that shit out or else you were just staring at your fucking children. Um, yeah, seriously. <laughs> God, they're so ugly. <laughs> like, ah, they're moving. They're hard to catch. Um, but I, yeah, it's, mm, that's really interesting. Okay, I'm so sorry. I'm these- also very, I'm buzzing Hi, right now. I love it. We'll have dinner um, soon. Oh, please give me something to eat. Somebody call um. producer. <laughs> no, but so their their job was the practicality. So we all see the end result, but we didn't see the steps that it took to get there. Because you needed to get these women into trade schools. You can't just have a job in a factory when you don't 
know how to operate any of the machines. I'm so dumb. I literally thought that women were just like showing up at the factories and they're like, here's how you no, make. They're training these women. Oh and and there's these labor force women in charge of getting these women trained because they'd already been doing Millions. the work. Yes. Okay. This is cool too, because I didn't even think about the connection of like, you had to already have women in power positions to lead the women to the jobs. Right. Okay. The missing link. Got it. It is the missing link. Not the weakest link. The missing link. You know that show's coming back? Uh, it did come back. Watched it last night. <laughs> Jane Lynch? <laughs> yeah, I did. Oh, she's very good. Very good. I do say. Uh, women did all sorts of jobs in the industry. Lumber, steel, welding. But the one job that was perfect for women was riveting. Most industrial jobs clustered around Detroit, Baltimore, and Seattle. Yes. Yes. Holla at us. We got shipyards. <laughs> so much steel. <laughs> so they were making aircrafts and ships in production. And learning how to rivet was crucial. So this is when the creation of the training video started no now these training videos are super fucking sexist <laughs> and <laughs> awful but they really did work <laughs> now here's what a rivet rivet sounds like uh it was even worse they were like have you ever sewn a button onto a shirt it's the same as putting a rivet into an aircraft oh it was my god <laughs> drill a rivet like you would a secret on a button. That did you can ever you sew? Then you can rivet. That is something that sticks out in my mind. I was reading. I I loved uh fucking Ramona Beasley when I was a child, and uh, I remember her older sister was like Ramona. Like you have to sew a knot. Like you sew a secret. Very like discreet or whatever. And I was like, I don't even know what the fuck that means. But okay, get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here with your buttons and your rivets. Well, I think Mary Anderson's kind of like Ramona. <laughs> so Mary Anderson, as mentioned before, recommended that women would be great at riveting because of their delicate touch and their accuracy in measurements. So because of women, Seattle triples their monthly output. Women end these training videos. I do want to say the training videos were sexist and weird, but they I watched a couple, but they also were I would like, love to see some of them. <laughs> but they also like did a good job. And then Detroit like decreased their number of working hours because of female efficiency. They were so good. They were out. <laughs> they were like, we don't have to pay them overtime. What? So women with families assembled into small groups because their husbands and boyfriends and fathers were away. They shared chores like cooking and cleaning and washing clothes and childcare. So those with young children would actually even share apartments so that the women could save money and utilities. And then one woman could work the day shift while the other woman worked the night shift and they could share child caring. Can you imagine like how good that must have felt for like lesbians at the time? <sighs> they were like, we're just trying to take care of each other's kids. Like, we're just trying to be efficient. World War II, revolutionizing <laughs> lesbians. I, you heard it here first. Tell you. <laughs> I, and I, I just think it's so cool that women, like, grouped together when they were like, hey, all these boys are gone and it's time. Like, we need to work, but we also have to be full-time mothers. And that was the thing that was interesting about the Rosie the Riveter culture is no one expected women to not be full-time wives and mothers that was still an expectation right but also you're working full-time for the government 
Because I legitimately think that men in charge think women have more time in the day than actually exists because we got, they, they think we got more than that 7-Eleven. <laughs> I think men exist on a 7-Eleven and we exist on a 7-800. Um, I just don't think that. I think men for so long have literally just pushed the idea of child rearing out uh-huh. of their head that like it wasn't a th- it's an afterthought. Right. I want every I want you to go to every uncle in your life in your brain and think about the last time he babysat you. That's what you should think about cuz he didn't. That's that's the answer. Your uncle was never asked to babysit you <laughs> until he got a girlfriend and then they were asked to babysit <laughs> She was asked to babysit you, and he was there. So, okay, so now I want to move to the songs and posters. We're going to get to real Rosie now. That was the backlash. Uh, not the backlash, the backstory. Okay, so now Rosie's first introduction was the term Rosie the Riveter, and it was written in a song in 1942, and the song was literally named Rosie the Riveter. You know what? I've literally never thought of the fact that like her name is Rosie the Riveter. I've never thought about what a riveter is. Yeah. Great noise. Like a cat in heat. Right okay. in people's ears. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> this song was by Red Evans and John Jacob Loeb. And it was the first, it was first performed in 1943 by James Kern K. Keisner or Kaiser. The song portrayed Rosie as a tireless assembly line worker who earned a production E, which was an award during World War II that showed excellence in production factories. Some of the lines, so that you know, were all the day, whether rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay. oh. Okay. So in 1943, obviously hearing that song, Norman Rockwell distributes a painting on the cover of the Sunday Evening Post on Memorial Day. And it's an illustration featuring a brawny woman taking her lunch break. That's that sandwich you talked about. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going straight to hell for saying sandwich. Okay. And she has a rivet gun on her lap, but beneath her penny loafer is a torn up Adolf Hitler's <gasps> Mein Kampf. I've never even noticed uh-huh. that. Right under her shoe. And also sitting on the ground is a lunchbox that says Rosie. And that's how people were like, oh, Norman Rockwell's calling out to Rosie the Riveter. Okay, so Rosie, the Yes We Can poster already existed? It already existed, but okay. the, her name is not Rosie yet. <gasps> oh, Norman is just a woman it was with a, a Yes, yes we, we Can, can poster. Okay. So Rosie the Riveter was a song. Actually, the Yes We Can poster came out before the song and the Norman Rockwell okay. image. And we're going to get to why this happened. Okay. 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 Um, so on top of all of this, Norman Rockwell painted Rosie the Riveter in the exact posture of the prophet Isaiah on the Sistine Chapel. No. She is sitting the way that the prophet Isaiah is sitting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The prophet Isaiah had a sandwich? No. <laughs> <laughs> no <I'm> sandwich. So- 
I'm sorry, a pita? <laughs> uh, was, it, was he from the Mediterranean <laughs> region? Hummus? 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 Um, <laughs> Is that what he had? I- <laughs> Cut it! Um, <laughs> I'm just picturing the prophet Isaiah with a big falafel. Just God and Jesus are reaching. <laughs> they're reaching so hard for each other. And Isaiah's like, Isaiah's is just sitting like, I'm not going to help at all. Where's my soup and salad combo? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought this would have feta on it. Um, did I have to pay extra for that? Why are the olives on the side? <laughs> wow. thought these would be pitted. <laughs> Okay, Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. Okay. (laughs) All right. So let's get into this other picture. Okay. (laughs) Rockwell's painting is the original technical Rosie. uh, And it's, you know, the the image that first said Rosie on the lunchbox. But even before this, and even before the song, as Katie said, there's a muscly bicep woman telling us that she can do it. So in 1942, Pittsburgh artist. <laughs> 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 it's like their games canceled this week because of COVID. Oh, so no, I feel really bad. really sad. I know. So Pittsburgh artist J. Howard Miller was hired by the Westinghouse Company's war production committee to create a series of posters for the war effort. And one of these posters became famous and it was called the We Can Do It image that in later years would be called Rosie the Riveter. But it never got that name during the war due to copyright restrictions on the Rockwell painting. <gasps> no. So after the war, people couldn't use the Rockwell painting. So they decided to use the We Can Do It woman and called her Rosie and the feminist movement in the 70s and 80s now used her and it's the most widely accepted image of Rosie the Rimeter and is synonymous with female empowerment. Rimeter. Did I say Rimeter? Yep. Riveter. Like a Riveter. Riveter. It is Kermit. Okay. Yeah. So, That's it, so cool. it was all because of copyright that they, they couldn't use the Norman Rockwell one. So they were like, well, let's find another poster that doesn't have copyright restrictions. So, okay. So you're telling me. Feminists decided. Feminists decide, <laughs> feminists wanted to use her as a focal point because mm-hmm. she should be. Mm-hmm. And Norman Rockwell was like such a famous artist that they couldn't use his image. So they had to go back to like. The, basically the prequel yeah. of yeah. <laughs> Rosie. That's so <laughs> it's cool, right? It's really fucking cool because honestly, if I hate copyright shit, I also, I think it's important, but if that hadn't have been an issue, I kind of wonder if Rosie the Riveter wouldn't have been even as important because there wouldn't have been any battle to be like, yeah, we're trying to get Rosie back. And also, you I know what think, I'm saying? I think the simpleness of the earlier image speaks to what I think it's. I, I think that image was before its time. It's almost oh, pop art. Yeah. The way it's drawn with the bright yellow background. And Absolutely. The, the blue and red. It's, I think it's very pop art. And a lot of propaganda back then didn't use yellow. So it stood out. 
Yes. You know what I mean? It was everything was red, white, and blue, but she was yellow. Ab no, absolutely. Um, mm. I just I love the idea that they couldn't get this like technically more famous painting, so they resurrected the original paint. I I love that. Okay, it's very good. So now I'm gonna go into a whole bunch of different women, um, and I'm gonna do my best to just call out to every woman who was an inspiration to one of these paintings or songs okay so I'm gonna start with the bicep we can do it Rosie first because she was the first Rosie even though that wasn't her name okay there was this picture taken by the United Press International of a woman working on a Michigan factory line this is the photo that was used to model the we can do it Rosie First, the picture they thought was based on a woman named Geraldine Huff, whose last name then became Doyle. So Geraldine Doyle, who was a Michigan war worker. Later, when we actually found the photograph in the 80s, it was found out that it was actually a picture of Naomi Parker, whose last name is now Fraley, who was working in the California Air Station. But the earlier woman, Hoff, was interviewed about this in the 90s. And she was like, listen, I saw the picture that they painted and they said it looked like me. And I was like, yeah, it could be me. But she had never claimed that she had met J. Howard Miller. But she was like, listen, I see myself in the photo and the photo looks like a woman who worked in the factory. Yeah. And I think every woman who worked in a factory should see themselves in Rosie. <laughs> so my first statement is Geraldine of Michigan and Naomi of California, you are Rosie the Riveter. Yeah. Number one. After Rockwell's picture came out, the press lost no time casting real-life Rosies. Rockwell's model was a Vermont 19-year-old named Mary Doyle. Now her last name is Keith. She was a telephone operator or dental hygienist. Not a Riveter. <laughs> we don't know which one. Two, two different sources said two different things, which is cool because your grandmother was a dental hygienist. She was. Um, she was photographed for the first time in a white shirt but then Rockwell brought her back and had her in the blue outfit with mm. the short sleeves and he always painted people from photographs not from in person she was holding a sandwich when the picture was taken she said that in an interview <laughs> he um painted her as much larger than she actually was and later phoned the model to apologize like I didn't mean to insult you like I just wanted her to look right to look a little beefier a little buff yeah so Later, Mary revealed, like we said, that she was actually holding a sandwich and the post cover was hugely popular. But after the war, the copyright held back people from seeing it until 2002. And it 2002. was 2002. Well, you could see it, but that was the first time it was available to be purchased. Oh, OK. So in 2002, the original painting was sold for five million dollars and Mary and her husband got to be present when the portrait was sold. Oh. So my second statement is, Mary, you are Rosie the Riveter. Most well-known Rosie is Rose Will Monroe. She was born in Kentucky and moved to Michigan and worked at the Willow Run Air Force. She worked on B-42 bombers and B-45 bombers. And when a crew came in to do some promotional shots, she was selected as the woman in the factory who looked most closely like Rosie. So she appeared in a promotional video for war bonds and to encourage women in the workforce. At the age of 50, 
Rose Monroe realized her dream of flying when she got her pilot's license. What? Yeah. Oh, I love that. After working on airplanes for so long in the factories. She did eventually get in a plane crash in 1978 where she lost a kidney and a little bit of eyesight but lived and didn't pass away until 1997. That's insane. Really cool. Literally, how many people can say they survived a plane crash? Very few. Unbelievable. So, Rose Monroe, you are Rosie the Riveter. Now I want to get into the song girls. While many women stand out as being Rosie the Riveter, the particular Rosie from the song, which is where we get the name, there's kind of two women that stand for that. First, Rosina Bonavita. And when newspapers around the world started reporting on Rosie, Rosina came to light as a woman working in a factory line in California who brought this caricature to life. She was reportedly one of the many women who could stand in a factory and flawlessly drill lap joint holes while driving thousands of rivets. Mm. So Rosina, you are Rosie the Riveter. Another woman who the song could possibly be about was Rosalind Palmer, whose now last name is Walter. She was also somebody that they thought maybe like, oh, the song's about this woman, Rosalind. She was an American philanthropist and humanitarian advocate best known for her support of public television programming, including the education of disadvantaged youth and wildlife as well. She passed away on March 4th, 2020, and her obituary called her Rosie. So Rosie Lind P. (laughs) Walter, you are Rosie the Riveter. Even Canada had a Rosie. Veronica Foster was a woman in 1941 who was a a Canada poster girl for women in the war Mm -hmm. effort. And she was actually Ronnie the Bren Gun Girl. Oh, I love that. It's really, the pictures of her are really cool. I also love the name Ronnie for a girl. I think (laughs) it's so cute. It's a Veronica nickname and it's great. She was the Canadian icon representing 1 million Canadian women who worked in manufacturing plants that produced munitions during World War II. So, Veronica, (laughs) you are Rosie. Or if you were in Venezuela, Vero. Vero. As we learned. We did learn that from (laughs) From like three episodes ago. Veronica, (laughs) thank you. I think it's also important for me to mention Eleanor Otto, who built airplanes for 50 years. 50 years. Years, years starting in world war ii she became known around her town as the last rosie the riveter and didn't <laughs> retire until she was 95 so eleanor you are rosie the riveter mary keefe from the rockwell painting was interviewed in 2015 and she said i didn't expect anything like this but as the years went on i realized that the painting and the idea was famous She died in Connecticut at 92. Mm. So there's some hard truths to this story. In 1942, Thelma McKilvey of the War Productions Board that we talked about earlier testified that women were being paid 10 to 15 cents less an hour, (sighs) even though there were equal pay requirements. And this varied from company to company, but in general, unions used claims of seniority and job differentiation to keep the pay down. There's always some 
fucking excuse. It's always, always there. And so it's like, well, you know, they can't get pregnant, da 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 da, and that's why we can't pay you more. And it's like, no, you don't want to pay me more because you're a fucking dickhead. Exactly. And it's just, you can't, they were using these excuses back in the 40s and they're using them now. Although many women found that they enjoyed the autonomy, it expanded their own, like, duty and their own capabilities and they're like look how great I am but it was seen as unnatural as the men began to come home from war campaigns began to return women to normalcy and many of these campaigns targeted housewives I want you to know housewives you're being targeted by the government I'll say homemakers you're being targeted by the government um because they didn't want these women in the workforce and they knew they couldn't target unmarried women because they already worked. They were targeting yeah. the people who had joined. Um, they were, they were targeting beating the moms. And this is the thing. They were targeting people who had someone coming home eventually to be like, get back in the house. That's the fucking thing. And that like, is the other part of the equation because the other half of the propaganda was directed at men, urging them to not support their wives in the decision to keep their job. For example, there was a faux interview where a man said, do you like your job, Miss Connor? She said, I love it. He said, how about after the war? Are you going to keep on working? He said, I should say not. When my husband comes back, I'm going to be busy at home. Good for you. (laughs) And she said, well, this job belongs to some soldier. And when he comes back, he can have it. He said, oh, that's swell. That's like the whole thing of like, I feel like we're doing the same thing with like immigrants now. Yeah. We're like, no, they're our jobs as if jobs have some sort of like property ownership. to them and ownership. There's no proprietary and job. No, <laughs> it's like, it's just very frustrating to be like, no, no, no. This job belongs to someone worthy because that's basically what this propaganda is saying of like, mm-hmm. I know Rosie told me I'm worthy, but now this interview with Mrs. So-and-so who doesn't actually exist is telling you that you're not worthy anymore. Rosie said I'm worthy. Uncle Sam said I'm not. That's a yes. Mm. Mm. God. I would also be super, super a bitch if I didn't (laughs) mention women of color right now. Yeah. Uh, African-American women in the industry during the war went from 6.5% employment to 18%. But employers were really spotty. They would be split between usually a job. There would be this many white men and this many black men. And then a lot of white and black men were off at war. So it was a ton of white women. And they just didn't hire black women. So as usual, both race and gender was working against them (sighs) in this crazy society. So like when I'm talking about Rosie, I'm talking specifically about white women who had rights. Like black women and other women of color did not have rights in this scenario. And their situation was even worse. Right, because I feel like they could launch a whole other campaign that was like, like, I'm not Rosie. Yeah. Like, Rosie doesn't fucking apply to me because you're not looking like it's kind of like we'll bypass sexism for the war, but we still will not bypass racism, Racism. which has always been the case. And I had to bring that up because it is a it's one of the most massive issues in the United States and 
sometimes feminism is very exclusionary and yeah. and sometimes not even on purpose but you exclude the idea of women of color and it's like that you know women of color shouldn't have to ride on your coattails to success they no, should absolutely. have success equally yeah. all the time yeah so i wanted to bring that up most of the women who worked or stayed working had already been in the workforce they were single and they were without children. So it's easy to overestimate what World War II did for women's rights. The total working women actually declined after World War II. It dropped from 37% during the war down to about 26%, which is lower than before the war even started. But it did change what the jobs looked like for women who were working. They went from clerical jobs to some more high paying manufacturing jobs because they had already been trained. The number of married working women also did increase after the war. There have been a lot of homages paid to Rosie in pop culture. There's been Wendy the welder, Josephine the plumber. The Carnival Cruise Line has a restaurant named Rosie's Restaurant. <laughs> Pink actually the singer Pink dressed up like her in Raise Your Glass. Rosie Revere, Engineer, is a wonderful children's book that my girls have. Beyonce Knowles dressed up like her in a video. There is a DC character named Rosie the Riveter. <laughs> Fallout 3 features, that's a video game for those that don't know, features <laughs> Rosie assembling bombs. Um, and she's a very popular Halloween costume and even more popular tattoo. And there are also nationwide programs and Rosie awards given to women in blue collar jobs. Now. I would be the worst if I didn't mention the most recent Rosie icon. May Creer is currently 94 years old, and she was working to help build bombers in World War II. But this past year in 2020, when the pandemic broke out in March, she knew that she could help. So she went to work once again, helping our country through a tragedy by jumping on her sewing machine. <laughs> May, at 94, grabbed red fabric with white polka dots, just like Rosie's bandana, and made face masks for everyone when there weren't enough to go around. And May, you are fucking Rosie. You're incredible. Rosie inspired a social movement. Although she symbolized and is named Rosie, we all knew that we could do it. The ideal stands for being a woman who's paid less, a woman who's a wife or a mother who works, a woman who's in a male dominated field or any damn woman who wants to lay claim to Rosie the Riveter, because that is why we do fictional characters on this podcast, because they mean more than just ink on a page. She was a symbol of wartime sacrifice, but she is American icon of gender equality and she is one of the many steps in breaking down social barriers and recognizing diversity in the workforce and that is rosie the riveter everybody's rosie the riveter that was fantastic it's incredible i also absolutely teared up at the end i couldn't um, believe the women who had laid claim to her who have done and those are just the ones we know about i know Oh, it's so cool, Katie. Okay. So now we need to talk about these two women because there's a lot to talk about with these two. <laughs> there really is. Together in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. 
Wow. I mean, the similarities. <laughs> How does this always happen? And the thing was, this wasn't supposed to happen this week. No. A mistake led us to comparing Rosie and Agent 355. And I... I'm blown away by the fact that like even just from the very like first 10 minutes of this episode, you were like, yeah, she's every woman. And I was like, fuck, that's what I was going to say about 355. Like she is every woman. I loved that 355 just translated in the code to lady. I because love that. that's what Rosie is in my head. Rosie equals lady. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in these cases, also, when we're talking about, we're act, we're also talking about two different major wars that shaped the U.S. in very in interesting ways. And in both of these wars, women were seen as kind of like untapped, where it was like nobody's acknowledging 50% of the fucking population and how they could help. But like certain people are like, we should probably use them. <laughs> and it's, it's also so crazy that you need a tragedy in order to access your untapped resources. It's right. Like, that seems really stupid because then also both in both of these situations after the war, it was like, OK, take your pension. Now go back. We don't need you anymore. Go do what you were doing before. Leave us alone. Well, and I think that that's been such a long history of people it's not even a disregarding. It's a like throwing away. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, you were useful. It's kind of like you're a tissue. You were useful to me in the moment where I needed you and I needed to sneeze. And now I don't need you anymore. So mm. go away. When you know for a fact that like men in the same position would not just fucking go away quietly. They would demand something more. And then you have some like you think about that one fucking woman who was like, no, I don't even deserve like, you know, to for the government to like, you know, put me up for this amount of years. I'll just take a small pension, you know, and like already like, no, I don't want to just be given something. I want to work for I'm it. I'm going to earn it. Yeah, I want to fucking earn it. And like the thing is, were men coming back for more heroes? Like, absolutely. But like the fact that like your job was to just go to any man is like, so any man just deserves this more than you. Who's been doing this job for like years. Like, and I, like, I thought also like, not only is it like, did men deserve the job, but I absolutely saw in my story and your story, the stratification of women and their importance based on whether or not they were married. Oh, yeah. It was very interesting to me that it was like being a married woman made you ineligible to work because you're on some sort of platform. They didn't even target their ads at single women. It was no. like they didn't exist. And I feel like, you know, if we're going to go with the Agent 355 thing and they were most likely connected to Talmadge, right? Or Townsend. Talmadge. Well... There was Talmadge and Townsend, which is very yeah. confusing. <laughs> Whichever one was like his common law wife, they thought yeah, it was Townsend. Her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Townsend, it was like, well, it's got to be some woman he's desperately in love with. There were like a bunch of women who are like, they, they're like, it must be her because she was connected to him in some way. And they're like a single. Yeah. And it's person. like a qualifier of like, well, you have to be connected to some man to be important. Right. <laughs> 
Um, and I think in both stories, they didn't realize they needed women until they were in a dire situation. So it's like in World War Two, after Pearl Harbor got attacked and the jobs are just totally depleted. They're like, oh, yeah, by the way, step back in, which is crazy because we had already done World War One and the Great Depression. No, absolutely. And I was thinking a lot about Bonnie from Bonnie and Clyde, how she was literally able to like smuggle guns into the prison because everyone's like, she's just a woman. And again, that's in the great depression. Like, yeah. The, and like people thought the same thing about women spies. They're like, they just don't exist. So that's why, again, they're an untapped resource because people continuously throughout history have underestimated women. And they just look like a commoner. So, yeah. I, and I might be getting my stories mixed up. I'm not sure. But I think George Washington didn't want aspiring until after Nathan Hale was executed on a mm. British ship. Because Nathan Hale, isn't he the, I have yet one life to live for my country or some Something shit like, like that. that. Some, he said some famous line. Yeah. That might have been John Paul Jones. But Nathan Hale definitely got executed on a ship. And I think Washington was like, oh, my spies from now on need to be normal fucking people. No, absolutely. And what makes women special is like not only are they at this point in time 90% of the time there's like normal fucking people but they're also more precise and more efficient because they have had to fly under the radar in so many instances for so long like when women are told like what xyz to do like they fucking do it because there's no other option for them at this time and it was the same thing when they were being told to get into the workforce it's like there had been women already doing it but then you have you know this huge increase of women coming in and doing these jobs very very well (laughs) better better actually better because there was no instinctual I'm better. There's always that part of you that's like, I have to prove myself. I think that's why they make better spies. I think it's why they made better employees. I think that it's why women are also meant to be under the radar. Yeah. Because I don't, and I know this is like going to sound so crazy, but sometimes I'm like, it's like a conspiracy theory. Like men just don't want other people to learn how efficient women can be. It's just <laughs> like the Chobe guides. And how once they started, we did them a couple months ago and you did this story and it was beautiful. And it was like, oh my gosh, the female guides are so much more efficient and people have a better time. We make more money when the Chobay guides are here. They're (laughs) way safer. They waste a lot less resources, like, and they're kinder to the environment. And it's like, yeah, because again, they're untapped and you're not fucking seeing how great they could be. And the only thing you think they're actually useful for is propaganda. Well, and I also think that I liked the way that um, your woman turned down her pension, mm-hmm. one of them, because I like the way that in every interview I heard with one of these 70, 80, 90 year old women wh- were people like, would you say that you are Rosie the Riveter? And they're like, no, no, I would not. No, (laughs) like every single one of them was like, was I in that one picture that one time and somebody kind of copied it? Sure. Am I Rosie the Riveter? No. Yeah. That's like a mouse scurrying across your floor and you're like, Mickey. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. No. And I think that that's why 355 and Rosie are so important because 
no one would ever claim to be the ultimate 355 or Rosie. You can't. Because they were meant to not be one person. And I think that's the most important thing to just like gather from these two women. <laughs> like that they were meant to not be one person and it doesn't matter who they are. No, it doesn't. That's the whole point. They're American icons. They did something Period. very cool, yeah. very American, very female, and it doesn't fucking matter. It could be you. It could be me. It could be anybody. But the one thing they can't be is a man. And right. I fucking love that factor of it. And that's why, like, I just love that, like, any person who, like, wants to identify with, like, Rosie or 355 absolutely can. But, like... I just, I don't know. I just, I love that. That, like, the one thing you can't be is just, like, a You fucking, can't be a dude. You can't be a dude. Now, do I promote dudes wearing a Rosie the Riveter Halloween costume? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wear it. It's very popular. And that's the thing. Some people might not find out they're a Rosie or a 355 until later in life. And yeah. that's okay. And then you'll find it. And then you'll find it. And then you'll, I just think, yeah. I, mm, yeah, I love that. It's really cool. I think it's this really was cool. the perfect accident. It episode. was the most perfect <laughs> accident. <laughs> I love it. Um, are also, you ready to toast? Yes, oh, no, I you am. have a thing. I just have one more thing. Also, okay. they both had comic book characters later on in but, DC. DC. Uh, in that DC. must have meant there was a really that cool artist. Yes. Um, but I'm ready to toast now. Are you ready to toast? I really am. Okay. Uh, so I want to make a really general toast to the women of the greatest generation mm. they're slowly passing away and they will be sorely missed they worked hard under pressure of not being woman enough if they didn't follow specific social norms and we as a group of you know millennial women just the two of us a duo not a group we will be <laughs> forever grateful for that sacrifice mm, absolutely it's incredible cheers cheers who do you got i'm going to toast women of mystery. So I think that women are often criticized for sharing too much, being too aloof, being too emotional, being an ice queen. So I am just going to toast women who make active decisions about what they want to share about themselves, whether it is being a totally open book or more of a secret agent, because any decision you make with your fucking information is valid and appreciated because no one should tell you how to fucking be so cheers cheers that's great because my promo goes right along with oh, that perfect what are you enjoying in pop culture this week i'm enjoying being a basic white bitch i love that i just <laughs> i was loading some pumpkins and hay bales into my car <laughs> and somebody in the parking lot this was two days before october started somebody in the parking lot was like oh it's that time of year for y'all huh <laughs> and I was like, excuse me, October starts in two days. It's time. Yeah, it's time. <laughs> and I actually did say that back and they laughed. Go. It was like, it was a perfect rebuttal. <laughs> but I just want to say, drink your fall beer, have your pumpkin spice. There is so much shit happening in the world right now. Don't let somebody judge you for capturing your joy. Dude, I am not here for people judging, like, judging people for how they drink their fucking coffee if that, you want apple cider drink your fucking apple cider in july i don't I, care like i don't care but yeah 
Yeah. Put I your agree. Christmas tree up. If you love Christmas and it makes you happy, put it up right now. Agreed. Go for it. Agreed. Nobody's going to get angry. <laughs> except for everyone, but I won't because it just, you need to find your joy right now because after yeah. that debate the other night, oh we're just like. Can't even talk about it's it. It's just shit on <sighs> shit right now. There's nothing. Okay. What's your promo? Because this is about to get ugly. Uh, I mean, I'm going to make it more ugly because on the line of um, Allie and I had a very private conversation before we started recording and I'm going to recommend People listen to um, Dak Shepard's episode of Armchair Expert called Day 7. It is a very raw and emotional episode. I cried a ton during it. Um, It's just a really good look into what it means to be a former addict, a current addict, someone who is struggling with that because, I mean... I'm not the most I've ever done is like smoke pot. I'm like such a little vanilla cupcake. I don't know. <laughs> Are but you a basic white I'm, I'm super basic, <laughs> but I am engaged to someone who has had so many struggles with that. And, you know, I am not in a position to put his business totally out there, but relapsing is very scary and it's always a possibility. And I just want to give a shout out to people who are going through that or afraid that they might go through that or their partners who always have that fear in the back of their head because it's very real and it's very scary. And it's something that, you know, could I have been with someone who like doesn't have like doesn't give me this worry like absolutely but like it's not the person that I love the most in the world right so like and there are other worries then there are other worries but like I don't know it's something that people struggle with and it's hard to verbalize that struggle and I feel like he did such a great job with being like I fucked up and then giving space for his co-host to be like this is how you hurt me in this process because Sometimes those people also go unheard. Um, So I just want to recommend that episode for anyone who just wants to even know more about, you know, recovery. Because it's a really important look into how anyone can have a struggle like that. So I don't know. I just it affected me a lot. Recently, I can't wait to listen to it. I um, really can't. I think it'll really be, I think emotional. it'll be touching. Um, so yeah, and just like fucking shout out to Dak Shepard. That's so fucking hard to be that honest. It's very brave because, like, and the thing what the thing that got me the most was he was like, when I was an addict sixteen years ago, I literally didn't give a shit who I lied to, who I fucked over. You know, I like it. That part didn't matter, and like. He made it about, I think he said, like, seven to eight weeks this time. And he was like, I couldn't bear lying to the people in my life like I used to. And that's such a big part of it. So, I don't know. It's just, it's really great to listen to. So, if you, um, also, if you can't handle it, I totally understand. But because if you want to learn. Really fucking hard. But if you want to learn. Especially really for important. people who aren't connected with somebody that yeah. or themselves or somebody who is not an addict or a recovering addict. Like, yeah. it's very, very interesting to, like, sit and say, I need to understand people who are struggling with this. So you can, you, you see people in a different light. Yeah. Because, like, before, like, so fiance and I were not together when he was going through it. But we were very good friends. 
And it was heart-wrenching to see someone who I considered one of my very best friends going through this. And like, and I'm super guilty of totally enabling him during oh, that time period. We, who was, we all who did. wasn't in, and like, in our circle? Yeah. I just, um, yeah, it, it totally changed my perspective on what all that does and means. And also just shout out to fiance because he's such an incredible person. And no matter what he's fucking done or been through or like whatever. So, okay. That was very long winded. Passion, passionate <laughs> cor- passion corner. I'm sorry. Passion corner. Passion personal corner. Um, find us everywhere. Okay. So find us everywhere. Um, we're on Apple podcast, Spotify. I think our Spotify is kind of messed up right now, but I don't know. I, we're working on it. Well, actually, um, <laughs> the, I, I found that once you post a certain number of episodes, they can't keep your newest episode at the top. Oh, it's really weird because it happens to me with two of my long running podcasts where I have to scroll to the bottom and see, see, yeah. click see all. OK. And that happens to a lot of like podcasts that have over over 100 episodes, which we <laughs> literally. Yeah. <laughs> So I just like I think it's just like a glitch in the system where they don't expect you to last that long. I got gotcha. you. Um, gotcha. So you just you have to search for the newest episode. It does come up every Thursday, no matter what. So if you click on the actual like icon and okay. scroll, it'll be there. Perfect. <laughs> um, but other than that, email us any requests you have. Rate We've and been, review us. This has been a blast. Use the word buzzard if you want to get something mailed to you. Yeah. Um, and uh, but most of all, we want you to never, ever forget that well-behaved women um, know more than one way to fold a napkin. <laughs> they definitely do. And they rarely make history. Uh, bye-bye. Goodbye. I have to pee so bad. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.